Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy. And this week we'll follow the many journeys and many serodes of Matthew Noon. Jennifer Walsh sees the joy in Minecraft, a game no longer just for children. We visit the winter garden of artist Catherine Boucher-Boyg back in the before times. And Rob Long has some advice for number 46. But first... Jennifer Walsh, who is very much playing it where it lays, although using a pixelated pickaxe rather than a trusty three-iron. You see, I'm doing a golf Minecraft bit. Here is Jennifer Walsh. It's the darkest time of the year, and the grind of endless video calls for work is beginning to take its toll. Like every university professor I know, I'm dealing with students who are understandably vulnerable, anxious, and often incredibly lonely. It's been going on a year of this, and they're completely depleted. Even the infrastructure seems to feel down, with our broadband dropping out frequently. The parks are full especially around late afternoon, with all the digital workers squinting at the trees in the drear dusk light, our eyesight shot by staring at a screen all day. People are beginning to complain of chronic back pain, hip pain, needing to have their glasses upgrade or a tooth seen to, but being too nervous to go on the tube to get it sorted out. In other words, nothing new to report. At least we're safe at home. My phone rings and I see my sister's name on the caller ID. It's not my sister, though. Instead, tiny voices bellow down the phone. Jen, are you ready to play Minecraft? It's my niece and nephew. I put the phone on speaker and move to my laptop. I log into Minecraft, into our closed world, and the screen fills suddenly with colour. There are emerald green mountains, a sea shaded in blasket blue and aquamarine, blankets of flowers and trees in full bloom. In the middle... Of all this verdant splendour, I find my niece bludgeoning a digital cow to death with a bright orange pumpkin. My nephew flies over, excited. He's built bookshelves in our house, loaded with colourful spines. He's put in an enchantment table because there's a book on that and he casts a spell. Pink and purple and gold wisps fly through the air. Out of all the digital spaces I frequent at the moment, Minecraft is the only one which feels like a balm to enter. It's where my niece, nephew and I share a technicolor, sunlit space. To dismiss this space because it's virtual is to dismiss the experiences we have there together. Deep in the grey, grey heart of winter, playing together with two kids I love in a virtual springtime. Well, that will have to sustain me 
until the real spring catches up with us. Jennifer Walsh there enjoying the not-to-be-underestimated consolations of Minecraft in good company. And the music was Looking at Sue by Jennifer Walsh. The impermanence of flowers is part of their appeal, but another part is the trace they leave behind, in drying leaves but also through that hardy perennial of painting still life. Just now, like this time last year, the winter garden of artist Catherine Boucher-Boyg is silently gearing up towards spring, while her studio is haunted by the ghosts of flowers past. Back a long year ago, Eleanor Flegg went to share the moment in the artist's garden. I see last year's mistakes and, and successes. I see the failures and successes. It's about as bare as it'll ever get. There are only a few things beginning to come back. So I see, for instance, in this section where I had my zinnias, which are my favorite to paint, and I'm, I'm wondering if that's where they really should be because now you can make all kinds of decisions. Um, I know that they need sun, but I know they get too much wind. I'm haunted by these echium, which are self-seeded. Uh, I call them Protestant plants because the only people I know in Ireland who have them are Protestants, so I could be wrong. But I'm just waiting for them because they're going to get crazy and have purple flowers. So then I'm wondering, can I, can I use them in a painting or not? I, I, I don't know. It'd be more likely to be a children's book, I think. What is it about a flower that makes it suitable for painting? Well, there's some practical things. It stays still and it's alive. It's not quite human, but almost. And then they're just as interesting when they start dying. So they're kind of like us. I realize that, you know, an artist or a writer, anyone gets their aesthetic from something. So what I realized is that my aesthetic comes from drawing real things. That's, that's my daily aesthetic. That's where the lines come from, the light, the composition, the shadows. That's where everything comes from. And it's very gotten very personal to know the history of each flower, to plant the seeds, to be deciding to be talking right now and deciding where they should go. I mean, they're a little bit like my family, but it's not exclusive. I mean, I will buy some tulips, and I might paint them. Can we go and have a look at the studio? Sure. That's the very last rose that was blooming over there in, in the sun. I mean, which is crazy in January. I don't think we've ever had roses blooming. So there's one in full bloom, red rose, and then one blossom that probably won't develop because it's too, got too cold. And then there's a dead rose hip and a faded rose. So And then the petals are falling on the plate. So that is a magnificent. If I were here tomorrow, now I would be, I would be painting that tomorrow. 
The rosebud looks like it belongs in a storybook. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're very narrative. And then all these things, which you see I keep, these are the faded dahlias. I can't quite bear to throw them out, but I'm also a little bit trepidatious about painting them. They're so dead. But, I, you see, you don't know. You, you surround yourself by all these things, and then you don't know what you're going to do until you do it. Did you make the vase? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, that was this, this year's um, vase. I made a couple of those that, that, you know, whereas that's last year's now. It's, it's a big circle. It's a big cycle that's happening. With the, with the vase, the garden, the vase, the flowers, the garden, the vase, the flowers, the paintings. It's, this, it's a cycle. Is it important to make here in vases? It's full of trial and error. I'm not a ceramic artist. I make huge mistakes. I take a course in Kinsale every September. If I get one or two vases out of that 12 weeks, I think 10 weeks, um, I'm, I'm lucky. Mo- most gets chucked. But th- this one now is, 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 is for me a honey. But when you know so little technically, you just make these technical errors. But then I do grow to like things like that one. I found I didn't like that one. It's, it's black strokes, and it looks like crows, actually, doesn't it? But anyway, I didn't like it. But then with bright orange calendula, which I always grow a lot of, it looks really jazzy, actually. Maybe you've got a vase you're only so-so about, but then you might grow the flowers to go in that vase. So then they work. at a painting of living flowers and a vase of dead ones. Right, well, so that would have been the last zinnias alive in a altered vase that I made. In other words, I made a vase that was like that but wasn't quite like that. So then that's a furthering of that process of you make the vase but the vase isn't maybe quite right so then you make a painting of a vase that doesn't exist which you could have made. gets quite complicated. But anyway, and then this is the arrangement, which I just haven't been able to throw out. They're completely faded. They're dried. There's no, they're, but they're so beautiful. Um, their heads are drooping and hanging down like damoiselles that are drooping and sad. So then I, you know, I ask every time I look, come in here, I think, should I draw it? And then do I want to make a painting of, of all dead flowers? I, they all, I, they're all around me and I really don't know what will happen the next time I come in here to work. When you're planting, are you thinking about the insects and the birds or the painting or how the garden's going to look as a composition in itself or all of the above? All of the above. Like you see those stalks there. They're like Daphne Wright's there. The, those are the sunflowers. Um, they, I got those seeds in the botanical gardens in Brooklyn, and they were magnificent. They were just huge. Um, but that's supposed to be my butterfly garden, but it was too windy for the butterflies. So everything, at this time of year, everything gets rethought and reconsidered, yes. And there isn't going to be that much time, because suddenly it's going to be March. And... You have to start planting things.
Catherine Boucher Boyg there and Eleanor Flegg in the artist's winter garden in the before times. For further travels through the artist process, Catherine Boucher Boyg's artist book Flowers is available now. Find out more on Instagram at Boucher Artwork. And next we meet the Sarod Nasul, an instrument that came to our next guest in a dream. Matthew Noon is an Australian-born Sarod player, now based in the west of Ireland. He makes music with some of Ireland's most celebrated traditional musicians, using that fretless, 20-odd-stringed Indian classical instrument. He talked to Culture Files' Louise McMahon about the many stops and many Sarodes on the musical journey to his latest album, a lockdown effort recorded in a Clare cabin. It's funny because the album, it wasn't really made with making an album in mind. During the first lockdown, I um, just needed to make music. So I set up all my equipment in a cabin on a piece of land that I own. Basically just messed around and most of it is improvised. the lockdown there was some other personal stuff going on in my life at the time and so I just used the cabin and the recording process as just a sort of cathartic therapeutic space really there was no compositions or tunes or melodies or songs or anything like that it was just press record that might be at eight o'clock in the morning or it might be at midnight or whatever my main instrument is the Indian lute called the sarod I've been studying that for about 18 years. So I've spent a long time in India learning how to play Indian classical music. I still still am learning how to play Indian classical music. Yeah, I guess the last five to ten years I've been doing stuff with the Sarod, which is not Indian. It's a pure thing, the highest form of some kind of... I have another instrument that I play Irish music on, the Sarod. And then I have this new electroacoustic sarod, which I got made for making weirder music, I guess. I did make an album with this electroacoustic instrument in um, 2018. So yeah, I'll give you a, a little demo of just some, something. It was the first time I'd used the instrument and also the first time I'd used any electroacoustic software. That was really uh, exploratory. Whereas this album, I feel like I've had the instrument for a couple of years and I've also 
bit more familiar with what I want to do with the electronic side of things, which is not very much actually, it's kind of pretty subtle. So that's pretty much what the album features is that instrument, electronics, some voice, some bits of percussion, some bird song. I think there's a ukulele on one track as well. But yeah, primarily the Sarood. The design for my instrument came to me in a dream. In the headstock of the instrument, there's an eye, which is why it's called the Sarood Nasul. In the dream, the eye could actually move. It was like this really trippy, you know, acid flashback thing. When I had the dream, I, I sketched it, and then I just sent the sketch to this guy, Edward Powell. I'd never even went to his workshop, never even met him. He was just in the Czech Republic working away, and he just sent me the instrument a year later when it was finished. The first day I had it in my hands, it was literally a dream come true, you know? And it's still a bit strange whenever I pick it up. It has a, has a strange quality, you know, it's not like any instrument I've ever played before, because it isn't like any instrument that's really been made before, which is kind of the whole purpose of it. I'm, I've been involved in Zen Buddhism since I was about 25. I took my um, precepts. By the time I got involved in Zen, I'd sort of given up playing indie music. I was always kind of getting into more and more experimental music. So like I started off playing guitar and got into indie rock, and then it was sort of the fringes of indie rock or post-rock. I started drumming and electronic music, and I was just always sort of searching for something, I guess the right vehicle. When I went to India, I was really into Zen, and there's a chant in Zen where they they mention the names of the historical places where the Buddha was in India, Lumbini, Bodhgaya, Kusanagara, Kapalavatsu. So my itinerary was just to follow these, um, the footsteps of the Buddha, I guess, and to go to these towns. I had sort of an idea of, you know, it'd be kind of cool to get into the music, but it wasn't really the main reason. But then it became the main reason because um, my illusions were shattered about what the spiritual path was. <laughs> I sort of fell off the, the Zen wagon in India and I got into music. Met my teacher in Calcutta in 2003. All the energy that I had been using for Zen in my meditation practice just sort of got channeled into Indian music then. That's sort of what I did for five or six years. Sagata Roy Chowdhury, he's still my teacher. I've had some training with another teacher who lives in Stroud, actually, an Indian man who lives in Stroud called K. Shrida. Shrida will be an elder of the tradition. I think he might be 70 now. Trigato was the biggest influence on me musically and, st and still in many ways is. Yeah, this is 23 strings, yeah, 23. Yeah. With Irish music, mostly I play jigs and reels and hornpipes and marches and play the melodies, yeah. It's been a process, really, of just getting familiar with the music and learning a lot of tunes. And I, I, I took up the fiddle as well. I mean, I can play the fiddle badly, but I have an understanding of the melodies. 
in a traditional sense as well. And then I just try and adapt them. I see myself as a, as a traditional musician and I've played with, you know, very traditional musicians and people have always said nice things. So it mustn't be too bad. So I've made two albums with Tommy Hayes, the percussionist, Tommy Hayes, and we have a project which is called Ontara. Most of that's traditional music with some Indian compositions and some of our own compositions as well. There's a wonderful film on YouTube called The Sound of a Country, which was made by Miles O'Reilly. Miles came with us on a tour of India with Martin Hayes and Dennis Cahill. I sort of put the tour together and then accompanied Martin and Dennis on their trip around India. There's a lot of music in that film of myself and Martin and Dennis and also other Indian musicians. That's a really good place to start as well. <laughs> Indian culture, you take off your shoes when you go inside. So, you know, if you, when you go to the concert stage, you're, you're sitting down on a, on a rug and you, so you, you take off your shoes, you know. I've never played the Sarod with shoes on. Part of the culture of the instrument. Matthew Noon there and the reporter was Louise McMahon and you can find that new album The Other Side of Knowing on Bandcamp among other places. And bringing up the rear shaker in hand is Rob Long and this time Rob is here to highlight for the newly minted 46th president everything he might learn about running the United States from screenwriting. A briefing obviously required given Joe Biden's heartening lack of network television experience. This is Rob Long with Martini Shot. We've got a new president of the United States, in case you missed it. There was a big show last week with Lady Gaga and a few others. And I mean, there's so much on television these days. It will be perfectly understandable if you somehow missed it. But it is slightly more likely now that someone in the new administration will hear these words mostly because it's slightly more likely that someone in the new administration knows how to listen. So on the chance that the new president has just tuned into this, first, hi, and second, I thought I would take this time to share some show business wisdom with you. See, politics and show business are pretty similar. They're the old saying is that politics is show business for ugly people, and that's true, but I'd also add that, as your predecessor has taught us, the differences between show business and the presidency are getting harder and harder to identify. So, Mr. New President, allow me to offer some advice. About halfway through any writing project, I always have the same thought. This is not going to work. Why do they go to the restaurant in the second act? 
Why does the dad tell the daughter about the life insurance? Who answers the phone when they're all on the scene at the supermarket? And also, who's watching the baby? You can almost always wave off some of the more arcane details that threaten to unravel the entire story. I mean, look, if the audience is asking itself how the letter with the job offer got to the main character so quickly, then you've got much bigger problems than a simple FedEx envelope in the frame can solve. It's the same with continuity. Continuity is the industry term for stuff in the frame that stays continuous. If an actor is wearing a hat in one angle, he'd better be wearing it in all the other angles in the scene, even though the scene is shot over two or three days and the hat itches and the actor keeps taking it off between setups. Unless it's supposed to be a magic hat, and that brings up other problems, like maybe spend five more minutes on the magic hat idea. I mean, once we were working with a studio executive with a real uh, passion for continuity. So in a dinner table scene, when we were recklessly mixing takes to achieve what we thought was the mission, which is a fast, funny dinner table scene, he only saw the knife and fork in the foreground, which mysteriously shifted to the left a few inches with each cut. What is this, he asked? A haunted house? Now, we countered by using the excuse that everyone uses when they've sacrificed the perfect continuity for an overall better scene. Hey, if they're watching the knife and fork, we're dead anyway. Babies, babies are different. Babies need to be watched at home, which means that in any family scene with a baby, if all of the characters are suddenly called over to, you know, I don't know, the hospital or the pizza place or wherever the story calls them, you always need to be thinking about the baby. Who's watching the baby? Which character isn't in the scene? And how do you convey that in dialogue? Because someone will notice. People always notice how babies are supervised or not, I've discovered. And they'll write letters. Lots and lots of letters. Once, a long time ago, when I was a writer on the ancient and almost forgotten comedy Cheers, we all came back to the writer's room in a state of high satisfaction. We had spent the past few days doing heavy surgery on a troubled script, and we had just seen the run-through, and it was perfect. It was funny and fast and unexpected. The whole cast utilized in a classic second-act block comedy scene set in an airport, I think. In other words, a triumph. And after two late-night rewrites, it was a pleasure to come back to the office, sink into the sofa, and take a deep, relieved breath. Until someone asked this question. Who's watching the bar? The whole cast was in the last scene at the airport, which meant that no one was watching the bar, which was the Cheers equivalent of the baby, which meant letters, which meant we had to leave one of the characters back at the bar, which meant that that character's lines and actions needed to be reassigned, which threw off the clockwork engineering of the final scene. A small thread pulled, a whole script unraveled, another late night. Mr. President... It's the little stuff that pulls you down. It only takes one card to collapse the house. You come back from a run-through, and you think you're out of the woods, and then some idiotic detail ruins your dinner plan. So here's my advice, Mr. President. Think big picture. Go for the major stuff. Keep your eye on the big story you're telling. Ignore the knife and the fork when you can. But always know who's watching the baby. And that's it for this week. For Martini Shot, this is Rob Long. And indeed, Rob and the rest of Culture File will be back with more words in your ear next time on the Culture File Weekly. If you'd like a snack before then, have a rummage in the podcast Deep Freeze or just Spotify, SoundCloud or the Lyric site, where you'll find literally thousands of previous episodes. The Culture File Daily is back in your ears on Monday at 6.10pm and we're back here with the weekly next Saturday at 6.30pm. Till then, bye now.